0: of the page, you'll find a one-sentence title or summary of the book, The Lord Sits Us Down for a Talk. I will explain that. I'll explain it right now a little bit further under the main point. When we are facing a time of disillusionment and discouragement, such as you know, living in this day and generation, we tend to request God to perform a quick fix of our circumstances with an expectation that his love will be shown this way. If he loves us, he'll fix my problem. Instead, we need to find our encouragement about his love by looking at God's character and his purposes in our suffering. Summary of the book of Malachi. One more time, we cover this idea of the uh, God theater. I've used the idea or or, uh, illustration of a God theater for all 12 of the minor prophets as if we had stepped into a theater and someone were going to act out the story You could imagine with each of these stories how how it would go. So if we have our 12th Minor Prophet presentation in our God Theater, it's consistent with our theme all along of 12 Minor Prophets. Three words, judgment unto restoration. My prayer is that 10 years from now, if the Lord were to tarry, we would be alive. You'd wake up and somebody would say to you, what are the Minor Prophets all about? And you would say three words, judgment unto restoration. And you would be Correct. So I hope I've drilled that into you sufficiently. Um, Malachi is last among the 12 because chronologically he's the last one to prophesy. And the heart of the book is about sinners breaking covenant, and God's covenant keeping love. He's faithful despite us being unfaithful. The book concludes, therefore the entire Old Testament concludes because it's not only the last of the minor prophets, it's the last of the Old Testament books. It concludes by looking forward to the coming of the new Elijah. You'll see that in chapter 4, verse 5. Then, when the New Testament opens, one of the earliest voices, Matthew chapter 3, was John the Baptist. Hmm. Later, Jesus himself said John the Baptist was the new Elijah, Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, which meant Jesus fulfilled the hopes of the book of Malachi for the coming Lord. If Elijah is the new messenger who prepared the way for the Lord, and John the Baptist was that one who prepared the way for the Lord, then Jesus is that coming Lord that we'll study in the book of Malachi. Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40, verse 3 are fulfilled in Mark 1.2. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord. Next on your handout, you see keys to understand the book of Malachi, a little bit about when, a little bit about the audience, and a little bit about who was the man Malachi and what was his message. I'm about to tell you what we know about Malachi. Those of you that have been in this class before, What do we know about Malachi? Not a whole lot, right? Isn't that almost always what we say? Not a whole lot. And that's good. I think that's the point. The messenger is supposed to be invisible. We get to know about God and his people and his works. So a little bit about when. So those of you who were here, the last two minor prophets, um, remember Haggai and Zechariah, were coming back from exile, Haggai emphasized on building the actual foundation and And uh, structure of the temple, wood and stone. Zechariah focused on the people getting themselves ready to worship God. Set up the altar and set up the temple, but your hearts have to be ready. So they're coming back from exile. They're trying to learn from the chastisement. Just fast forward somewhere between eighty and hundred years, and now we have Malachi. Um, So some of that is um, what I'll talk about in the next few minutes here about when and the audience. Notice in Malachi 1, verse 8. So if you have it open, you're you're looking at chapter 1, 1. It says, Oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then jump down to verse 8. Uh, Malachi 1, 8. I want you to notice notice the word governor. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So he's talking about their sacrifices, the animal sacrifices they were bringing to God were the worst animals. They just kind of wanted to get rid of them. So they're saying, let's get this and give it to God. And he says, you don't pay your taxes that way. You wouldn't do that for your governor. But what I'm drawing your attention to is the word governor because it's a clue to when. The word governor, if you remember from the last two minor prophets we studied, the word governor was a word that the Persian Empire used to refer to local areas. They put somebody in charge of that local area. Anybody remember the name of the governor who was put over the 17-square-mile area around Jerusalem at that time? At the time of Zechariah? Uh, last week. Zerubbabel, remember that? We had Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Well, we still have this, this title of governors at the time of Malachi 80 to 100 years later. So that's our first line under when. After Persia had established local governors. Okay, The word governor was a technical term from the Persian Empire. The time of the preaching of Malachi must have been after Persia conquered Babylon and established local governors. So the office of governor was established by the Persians who had overthrown Babylon during Judah's exile in Babylon. Remember, Babylon came and took... um, the people from Jerusalem, away to Babylon as prisoners of war. They then were overtaken. Babylon was overtaken by Persia. So Persia kind of inherits these Jewish exiles, right? So, so they're under Persia now. So it also must have been after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, since the, the, the time of the prophesying of Malachi mentions the same problems that Ezra and Nehemiah mention, namely, Believers marrying unbelievers, which we'll cover today. Failure to give God 10% of their income. Not keeping holy the Sabbath. Corrupt priests. Unfair treatment of others through holy, unholy living. So the, the other prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, wrote after the return from captivity. So Ezra came home in the second wave of exiles returning and he wrote about rebuilding the altar and the temple. Nehemiah came home in the third wave of exiles returning home and wrote about rebuilding the city wall, and he served twice as governor of the area. So Ezra and Nehemiah led the people to dedicate the finished city wall and celebrate the Feast of Booths and make other reforms for worshiping God and serving God in holiness. So it seems like it was about that time or after that time as well. So, about the timing. Number two under when is after the temple was rebuilt. So you need to understand that as we approach Malachi. The temple has been rebuilt. So the timing of the writing of the book of Malachi, the timing of the preaching of Malachi to the people must have been after the rebuilding of the temple was finished. Um, that would be 515 BC, if you remember, when the temple was done. In fact, it seems like Malachi wrote considerably later because it would have taken time to develop Malachi's concerns. When you're all excited about a dedicated, freshly, recently dedicated church building, everybody wants to come, it's really neat. But if the church building has not been refurbished or nothing's been done to it for decades, it itself is not something that draws people, right? The temple services has been going on long enough that they seem to have lost their freshness, their novelty, and their excitement because the people had degenerated into religious formality. We're just doing this, and you'll, you'll hear in some of the phrases from the priests, like, we're getting so tired of killing these animals, offering these sacrifices. Right, so that kind of religious formality and weariness only comes after you've been doing it a while. So after the temple was rebuilt and decades later, and it fits with the time schedule that we know. Moving on to audience, I want to say a little bit on three different points on your handout to Israel. So if you notice in Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. <sighs> okay, please listen carefully. To Israel, you would think, refers to the northern kingdom of Israel. But remember where we are in time. The northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped out by Assyria by this time. So, who's he writing to? This is Malachi's shorthand title, Israel, which actually is addressing the southern kingdom of Judah having returned from Babylon. You say, Are you doing trickery to me, Ben? No, I'm trying to help you understand where we are and why it is that way. The time stamp was after the exile in Babylonian captivity, so it had to mean that the audience was actually due to return from exile. I'll just give you a quick illustration. Historically, America, if you go back enough in history and time, the word America referred to all of North and South America, the two continents together. But if you say to someone today, anywhere in the world, America, what do they think? The United States of America, which is a very small sliver compared to the two giant continents, right? That's just one quick illustration. I could give you more. But this word Israel refers to the people who had come home from Babylon after, and and that happened 80 to 100 years earlier. So to Israel refers to, in general, more generically, God's people, Israel. Okay? Number two, Israel prefigured, the word Israel now, actually prefigures the Christian church. So the audience of Malachi is you. It's written to you. It's for you. It's written to you. We, we are the people of God. We are the Israel of God. Uh, Galatians 6.16, peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. So as we study, we need to remember Israel is the Old Testament picture of the Christian church, and it's a word from God to Israel, that is, all of God's people Whether or not someone was born, an ethnically Jewish person, the book of Malachi was still written for them, right? They're the people of God of the day. Same for us. Whether we're ethnically Jews, Jew or Gentile, we are the Israel of God by faith, so Malachi is for us. Israel, in verse 1, prefigures the Christian church, which is you and me. Number three, under audience, the original audience of Malachi was suffering in declining times. Does that sound like you? Suffering and concerned in declining times. And we could even say what we just said a moment ago about worship, that worship has degenerated to religious formality. If you look at our country as a whole and how church is done in our country, you might conclude that it has degenerated into religious formality. People go to church. Okay, um, remember that Just a tie-in to last week. So Zechariah chapter 14. Remember how we ended with the glorious picture of God's promise of wonderful things to come, right? Here we are 80 to 100 years later. Um, There doesn't seem to be any sign of the glorious things to come that Zechariah ended with. So as a result, the people were naturally growing disheartened. In fact, the people to whom Malachi is speaking right, it has started to doubt God's covenant love for them. In their doubting, their religious practices became meaningless rituals. We should probably do this, but we know that God's not really helping us. Who are they? Just zoom out and look at the entire world at that time. You have the Persian Empire, which is huge. Many, many governors, right? He had this one tiny little slice of 17 square miles and you have one little governor over it. You have one little people who have managed to rebuild their temple and their city. And they're bringing animals to worship this god. But the god supposedly of all the heavens and the earth isn't really doing much for his own people. It seems like he's blessing Persia, to be honest. <laughs> the Persian Empire. He's not really blessing us. So if you look at it outwardly, you can see how they would grow discourage, discouraged. And their rituals to worship this god might become nearly meaningless because they didn't see him as a powerful God working on their behalf. Uh, They also were not aiming at godly living, which we'll address today. And on top of all their concerns spiritually, if you look at it economically, they were living in a time of pain, a time of economic recession. The original audience of Malachi was living during declining days in all these ways, as the additional audience of Malachi can relate that's you. Remember, you're the additional audience of Malachi. We can relate to declining times. So, Malachi understands what we're facing. God himself understands what we're facing. Um, so, that as the audience to be encouraged. Next section on the handout Who was the man Malachi? What was his message? Remember, the name Malachi means messenger. So, that's point one the messenger who brought the message. My messenger, it's God himself who's speaking uh, through his prophet. We've seen that in all the prophets, so here it is again. He's an official prophet, official messenger from God, bringing God's word. So let's never forget that it's God speaking. Number two, the importance of the message. The the word oracle is used here, which could be translated burden. But if we say the burden of the word of the Lord doesn't necessarily communicate to the English reader, right? So you say oracle, and then you say, what's an oracle? So then we have to explain and say it's a burden. So I guess that's, you know, it's kind of like saying X, which used to be Twitter. Can we just say X now? Because it actually is X now. You don't have to always explain that it was Twitter, right? You could say oracle, or you could just say burden. Oracle, which means burden. I don't know. They just give work for pastors to do to explain stuff, right? Oracle means burden. So the importance of the message, the idea of burden is not, oh, bummer, This is a burden. The idea is the weight of it. This heavy. This is profound. This is deep. This is waxing philosophical. This is important. Malachi felt that he had to speak it because the people were in such a bad way spiritually. So he keenly felt the heavy responsibility of bringing this message from the living God to his people when they were discouraged, etc. It was not Malachi's opinion, that he's presenting to them. Well, excuse me, let me weigh in on what we're facing as a nation. No. It was God's authoritative commands for his people that Malachi was delivering, and he sensed that weight. That's why the word oracle or burden is there. It's the importance of the message. Number three, the format of the message. This is where I'll explain that title. The Lord sits us down for a talk. All right? The format of the message is interestingly... Malachi presents what some have called disputations. I don't like that word, because as soon as I say the word disputations, then I have to explain it. So as soon as I have to explain it, I should pick a different word. So I pick the word talks, and you immediately understand the word talks. It's a dialogue between God and his people. So often we'll notice three parts, and I created a whole chart for you. I worked hard on this chart on your paper to explain how those three parts of each talk goes. A, God accuses the people of sin. Your, your uh, first column, which is the, the left column is actually where it appears in the book of Malachi. The second column is God accusing his people. The third column is the people's response, where they dispute. That's from the word disputations. God accuses them, and they say, no way. No, 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 we're not guilty of that. They talk back. They reject God's uh, accusation. They dispute it, okay? They ask how. And then the, the next column, the far right column, is how God proves his case. He defends his case. The disputation is over, and God says, I'm right. <laughs> you, uh, you are guilty of these sins, right? So here's what's fascinating. This is why I'm going to set up our class today this way and next week. Because out of the 55 verses of the book of Malachi, 47 verses are spoken by God. Let's run that past you again. Out of the 55 verses of the book of Malachi, 47 are spoken by God. I don't know if you've done this kind of thought and calculation with regard to your whole Bible. But this proportion, 47 verses out of 55 verses, this proportion of God himself direct speaking, is the top of all the 66 books of the Bible. There's no other book of the whole Bible that has more of a proportion of God direct speaking than the book of Malachi. All right, so I just wanted to draw that to your attention as we introduce it the format of the book. And we'll talk about these talks or dialogues in a moment. Number four, the topics of the message. He wrote about public worship, he wrote about personal morality, uh, such as marriage. We'll talk on marriage today. And he talked about the vivid picture of the end of the Old Testament uh, to look ahead to Elijah. That's the topics, worship, holy living, the end of the Old Testament. Number five, the relevancy of the message. Just as the message applied to the people of God, the Old Testament original audience of Malachi, who we could call Israel, so also the message applies to all the Israel of God, which is us now, the by faith people of God, the church, the New Testament people of God, the Israel of God. So always this book is relevant to you and to me uh, through Christ. And then number six, the last one, the surprise of the message. Um, People who were discouraged were forgetting or doubting that God loved them, and God's love comes across loud and clear. In fact, it's the lead-off important um, message from God in the book. I'll prove that here, uh, verse 2. Right, right after he says the burden or oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi says, I have loved you, says the Lord. The first thing said, right? You have a sit down coffee meeting with somebody. All right, so what are we here to talk about? First thing they say is, I have loved you, right? This is the lead off. This is a, the top thing, the most important thing. It is the surprising message. People who are not so sure that God was on their side get the strong message right off the top, and then it's explained throughout the book. So I wanted you to understand the, the surprising message of the book. Now we're ready for the chart. Let me take you back to last week, so, or the last two weeks. Remember, ah, the last three weeks, sorry. We did three weeks on Zachariah. Zechariah had this unique format that is only present for Zechariah. Anybody remember what that was? What were, what were those things that we looked at, eight of them in the book of Zechariah, that only Zechariah had? Two words. Like, night visions, right. So we had night visions. It's a structure that's only in Zechariah. Just like Zechariah wrote night visions, Malachi wrote a set of talks with God, disputations with God. So I wrote it just above your chart there. Like Zechariah wrote a set of night visions, Malachi wrote a set of talks with God. So I wanted to explain these talks with God before we move on to the overall structure and and work our way through the book. So let's go through this chart by looking at the seven times the word how appears. So we'll notice by doing this, the attitude of the audience of Malachi, the attitude of the mind of man. Man considers himself superior to God. We can always quickly put God in our courtroom and call God to our account, right? Man believes that he or she can measure God. So notice the word how in verse 2. This word how will appear seven times in these talks or disputations even in your English Bible, and I know I changed the words on the last one on our, on our chart, but you get the idea. In each case, it expresses the mindset of challenging God. Challenging the statement from God and demanding that God explain himself to us. Okay, so let's look at number one. The word how in chapter 1, verse 2. When God said, I have loved you, it was actually an implicit accusation that the people were doubting God's love. I know you walked into this coffee meeting thinking that I don't love you but shame on you because I have loved you, right? That's kind of the whole context. It's corrective, it's accusatory, it's saying you have doubted my love when you have no good reason to doubt my love, right? The people responded, it proved this. What did they say in response? Let me read it to you. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You You sense the challenge, pushback from the people to God? That's the point I'm making throughout the whole chart, the pushback from the people, right? They asked how God has loved them, and it's a bitter complaint about the way that people felt that they've been treated by God, and as a result, they had this religious worship that was formal, empty, weak, and they were satisfied with this sort of worship. Time to go to temple, time to go home. They're a weak nation one small section of the giant Persian empire, God had not prospered them. The implication is if God really did love them, he would remove their problems and make them rich, make them powerful, make them large like the nations. Number two. Now we're jumping to uh, chapter one, verse six, where the word how appears next. It actually appears twice under my chart number two, verse six, and again in verse seven. Those are the two instances that we're looking at now. Um, Chapter 1-6, when God said they despised his name, the people responded by asking, how have we despised your name? He answers, they had been offering blind, crippled, or diseased animals and sacrifices. They gave God the animals nobody else wanted. On top of that, they complained about being weary of serving God. Not a good attitude for God's people. Then again, the next verse, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, look for the word how again. God explained that they were offering polluted food on God's altar. The people again responded, how have we polluted you? The gall of asking, how? Right? They're bringing deformed animals instead of the best animals, and yet they saw themselves as performing their duties perfectly. How dare you? We're bringing animals. What do you want from us? Is kind of the tone. Moving to number three in my chart, Malachi 2, 10 to 16, the word how appears because the God accused the people of wearying God with their words. The people said, how have we wearied you with our words? God explained how. The people have been blaming God for the way he's managing the world. As they look at the world, the good people themselves are suffering misfortune, while the bad people, everyone else, were being blessed by God. Let me read the whole verse, chapter 2, 17. Listen carefully. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them or by asking, where is the God of justice? Did you catch it? God seems to prosper the Persians. He's not prospering us. We're in worship. We're bringing our animals. Persians are out there doing all kinds of crazy, wicked stuff. See, the flaw in their thinking was that they considered themselves the righteous when actually they're acting wickedly. You don't want to ask for God's justice when you're acting wickedly. You want to ask for his mercy and grace, right? They had received God's mercy and grace. He was being very patient with them. He was receiving this terrible worship from these deformed animals, and he was confronting them about it ever so calmly through prophet Malachi, right? They should have a thankful attitude and straighten it out instead of a demanding attitude. How have we wearied you? Moving on to number four in my chart, chapter 2, 17 to 3, um, 5, but this is actually a quote, um, I think I made a mistake in the chart, because ch- the quote is chapter 3, verse 7, where the word how appears next. <clears throat> God accused the people of turning aside from his statutes and needing to return to him, but the people responded by asking, how shall we return? And the attitude of the people is again exposed in their reply. They're not in need of some basic lesson of the actual steps of repenting and returning to God. They already knew how to repent and turn to god they just weren't doing it why were they not doing it because they didn't see the need to repent remember they saw themselves as righteous so they're already being as close to god and as obedient to god as they could possibly be they already done everything they possibly needed to be done so what are you talking about lord god right that's their response number five in our chart the word how appears in chapter 3, verse 8. God said they were robbing God, but again, the people showed a bad attitude by responding, how have we robbed you? The attitude of the people was that they had done everything correctly in terms of their finances. They desired to defend themselves from the accusations, so they asked God for specific examples of where they robbed God. The idea was that they would quickly disprove God's examples and show themselves to be models of providing to God everything they're supposed to provide to God. So they answered God answers in five words. It's kind of like he's getting fed up. He answers rather curtly or briefly. Look at the end of uh, verse eight, chapter three, verse eight. How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that. He got him right. He's explaining. Moving on to number six, the last one in my chart. The word how, chapter three, verse thirteen. Here God said they had hard they had said hard things against God. But the people, one last time, responded by asking, Guess what? How have we spoken against you? All along the people in speaking against God by questioning his love, dishonoring his name, defiling his sacrifices, attacking his justice, questioning his commands, and withholding his tithe. However, they considered their own words and thought their words were quite appropriate. Thank you very much. They're astonished to hear that God had concerns about their words. And the words of the people is seen even down to today. Remember, the audience is not just Malachi's original audience, but also us today. People in churches today are not in open rebellion against God. They come to church, right? They don't deny that they should give donations to church. But they're operating on the false assumption that, you know, if you look back over the last few decades, I've given donations to church plenty of times. What do you want from me? Right? Uh, I've always been true to God all along. Um, these are not people who rise up, shake a fist at God, and say, We will never be loyal to God. That's not what they're doing. They're in church, they're the ones who are in the worship services, right? It's a lot more subtle. They're in established churches. They're not people who say, I'm never going to darken the door of a church again. These are the people who do worship God. They've convinced themselves that their worship is as pure as it ever needs to be, that God is pleased with them. Why wouldn't he be? If God is not pleased with them, then maybe God ought to think differently about it. How could I not be pleasing to you, they might want to say, right? I've been strict in my attendance to services whenever there's not golf going on. bodies are in the pews, and it was God's contention that their hearts were far from him their words were far from the ceremonies they were meaningless and these are the people who are boasting in their knowledge <clears throat> their mechanical responses to that knowledge the inward persons the character the lives are ongoing contradiction as god evaluates and they're not living according to god's will but god saw sin in the people and they didn't see it <clears throat> so they live in this disputation with God. You know, They're having this talk with God and saying, no, 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 we're right. And so to use the language of the Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy 3.5, there are people who are showing the appearance of godliness but denying its power. What does that mean, the, the power of godliness? The, the power of godliness is the changed heart leading to a changed life, a repentant and broken attitude before God which leads to changed words <laughs> Changed pocketbook, uh, changed behavior, changed everything. A fervent desire to grow and improve, and an eager readiness to admit when wrong. So many church going people don't consider themselves to be wrong or displeasing to God. So if Malachi says to them, for example, get right with God, they say, What? Me? Look at our culture. And you're telling me to get right with God? Are you serious? The same people who then encounter trouble in life. Let's say the same person, their job falls through. A romance goes sour. Sickness or death reaches someone close to them or themselves through sickness. And they're quick to do what? Blame God. Do you love us? Which is the initial line of God in this coffee talk. I have loved you. If he comes across with that, I have loved you, when I'm facing this distress in my life, I'm going to (laughs) argue. See? They believe they have a right to God's blessings as they define God's blessings because they've lived such an upright life. That's us. We're the audience of Malachi. Those who think this way don't understand the book of Malachi, God's message, or God's messenger here. They can live a corrupt life while in God's church. Uh, the reference of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.5 is from a chapter describing dark immorality. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 4. Listen to this. Understand this. That in the last days. This is the last days are between the first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ. Welcome to the last days. We're living in the last days, okay? That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless. Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. And Malachi said, Amen. Right? That's exactly what Malachi was saying. And Paul is saying it with other words. It's the same message, right? And all the people said, Malachi said, Amen. But what all the people say? They don't say, Amen. All the people say, how have we been like this? See? It's it's very relevant. The relevance of Malachi is profound. We have materialism, we have arrogance, we have thrill seeking. Why would somebody tie their body to some bungee thing and come down? And if the bungee doesn't work right, you consume them. No, you can't. Your family can sue them because you're gone. Right? Thrill seeking is completely irresponsible, right? Wasteful, selfish, and we're not talking about the wider culture. It's a description of people in the church, people deeply involved as members of the church. That's Malachi's contention. He's, his audience is to Israel, remember? It's not, his audience is not to the nations. All right. So we've covered the intro. Um, we've made a lot of good, we've done a lot of good work today. So we've got about 10 minutes left. And what I'd like to do is uh, jump to... Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Because I've already kind of summarized. If you look on your handout at the bottom, I've summarized heading, Word of the Lord to Israel, A, B, and A and B I've covered. Notice how the outline is, is shaped like a mirror, a reflection. You've got A, B, and C coming in, and then C prime, B prime, A prime coming back. It's, it's as if you put A, B, and C and hold it up to a mirror, It'll say A, B, C back to you, but the opposite direction. It's a half diamond, or that's what we call chiastic structure. So I've tried to demonstrate on the page to show you, we've already covered A and B. C and C prime are basically the the center of the book. This is the most emphasized part of the book. So I wanted to jump to C, where uh, the Lord speaks against unfaithfulness in marriages, as one example of what we've talked about so far in these these disputations, all right? So this is about marriage. The Lord spoke against unfaithfulness in marriages. This is the ancient people in, in Jerusalem. So marriage, marriage and divorce, specifically marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What was happening was the Jewish people, the people of God, who had returned from Babylon, people of Judah, men were divorcing their Jewish wives who were believers in God, and they were worshiping God together, and they were divorcing their believing wives and marrying some hot thing from another nation, okay, that didn't believe in God at all. Um, they were divorcing and remarrying, okay. So he's addressing this, but more than just those with the more flamboyant illustration of that. But even even people who. Um, wouldn't necessarily remarry like that, but we're getting divorces. So marriage and divorce. It's a foundational area that reveals the status of a person's walk with God, the status of the nation's walk with God, the church in their walk with God. What's higher in terms of commitment than marriage? What's more official, more solemn than the vows that are taken at marriage? Right? What's a longer commitment than the lifetime commitment of, of marriage? What's a more all-comprehensive commitment? Than marriage. I mean, you go to have a roommate, and you're like, okay, this person could get in my stuff when I'm not here. But when you're in marriage, like, this person co-owns my vehicle, and my house, and all my, my money, and my life, right? So what other commitment involves you, the other person, government, and God? I mean, this is huge. Marriage is huge, right? And here's the interesting thing. Apparently, a person can wake up one morning and simply decide to walk away from marriage, I don't know if you realize that this happens, but a person could just wake up one morning and say, um, I'm done. And because that's true, it dishonors God. And because it's happening, we all suffer as a society. And what's the cause? Nobody talks about this. Malachi talks about this for all these verses now. Malachi uh, two ten to 16 What's the cause? Spiritual unfaithfulness to God. Because they want to say it's okay, I can wake up one morning and say I'm done. So Malachi two ten to sixteen contains some of the most forceful teaching on divorces from two believers and remarriage to unbelievers as anywhere in the Bible. So here we go, uh, Malachi two ten. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and. Abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guide yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So this passage now contains some of the most forceful teaching. And ignoring the book of Malachi is part of the problem. Problem in the church, problem in our country. That this teaching is endorsed and fulfilled in the New Testament teaching. Even the priest. Now part of the problem with uh, American Christianity is when we hear the word priest, we all automatically think Roman Catholic priest and it's a gentleman who never gets married. That's not the case here. We're talking about priests who would have wives and families, just like you could think of Protestant ministers who have wives and, and families. So remember that anytime I say the word priest, that this was men who were to be married. Right? The priests who should have resisted the breakup of godly homes across Judah were themselves getting divorced from their own wives, and we're following that with encouraging others to divorce their spouses. So the ungodly priests is what he's addressing here, and they were permissive regarding divorce. God hates divorce. So God himself was part of the first contract of the husband to the wife, and God made the two into one flesh, right? Uh, Genesis 2, and Paul repeats it in Ephesians. God created marriage itself in the first place. So God made the human race male and female, and it was God who said that man in his singleness is not good. It was God who made a helper suitable for him. It was God who brought the first woman to the first man. It was God who performed the first marriage ceremony. He officiated, if you will. It was God who said to have children, build up, build up the human race, be fruitful, increase in number. So when we get to Malachi 2 verse 10, that's what Malachi is referring to when he asks, have we not all one father? Verse 10, has not God created us? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? God united each man and wife in each permanent marriage in body and even in spirit. They belong to God. So the two have become one flesh. So then he continues with verses 13 to 15 that we read. Why one? Why one man, one woman become one flesh? Why one flesh? why did God not make more than one wife for Adam? He's got ribs on his right and ribs on his left. You could make a woman out of a rib on the right, a woman out of a rib on the left, and you could make two of each, or three on this side, two over here. Why is there one? One woman, one man become one flesh. Why? Our culture barely even thinks these, these ways. Why didn't God allow for more than one husband to Eve, not to be sexist in one direction? Why are there not several men for her? Because God was seeking godly offspring. You just got to think it through how family dynamics work, right? Godliness is linked to marriage faithfulness. Divorce, which is itself a sin, leads to other sins. So, verse 15, for example guard yourselves and your spirit, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Marriage is the first institution. And on that institution, all other institutions are built. Churches, schools, governments, hospitals, police, fire, army, navy, businesses, associations, clubs, public services. I would argue roads, bridges, libraries, parks are all impacted if we destroy marriage. All the other good and beneficial institutions will be damaged in some way. It's not just some business contract that's between two people, leave them alone. It's not just some roommate situation. It's not even merely physical It has to do with morality, with who each person is. It has to do with property. Who owns that property, that house? It has to do with procreation, of course, and children. Who is their parent? Who's responsible for that child? Who trains them? Who says no to them? All of this is involved. The man and the wife are united by God. No one ought to separate that. No one. And so God provides strength and love to that couple. He provides a warning to that couple. You tamper with God's holy institution of marriage, and you will face pain. You'll face consequences. It's just going to hurt. It's damage. It's better to stay with it and to endure personal unhappiness than to treat as expendable the solemn vows of the wedding ceremony. For example, God doesn't allow mixed marriage, one believer to one unbeliever. In uh, verse 11 and 12, he he makes that clear. They profane the sanctuary, marry the daughter of a foreign woman. Confirmed in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Men of Israel had been divorcing their wives, marrying the daughters of the heathen. Both in Old Testament times, New Testament times, mixed marriages of a believer with an unbeliever usually ends in unhappiness or divorce. Often the believer's faith is weakened or even lost. Everybody says, I'm going to evangelize my spouse. And yeah, that can happen. And there's lots of nuances all covered in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not here to talk about all of that. We're running out of time. But ordinarily what happens, you have to admit the facts on this, ordinarily what happens is the believer's faith is weakened, too often lost. And even if that doesn't happen, it's unnecessary sorrow brought into that home because of disobedience to God at the start. The home has tension. One for God, one against God. And it's felt all day. The believer understands God's word. The Bible teaches God hates sin. Rarely does God take one sin and point out that he hates one sin. But God says, I hate divorce. Could this be part of the healing needed in the church, the healing needed in the country? It's striking. It's a real gift from God, hidden away here in the minor prophet Malachi that God says he hates divorce. Why? Reason number one, man and a woman break their promise to each other. God is a promise-keeping God. Anybody who breaks their promise, he doesn't like that. He hates that. Promise was joy and sorrow, better for worse, plenty and want. People have all kinds of excuses. Reason number two, God hates divorce, because it does damage. It hurts each person. No, this is going to be relief. No, it's going to hurt you. It hurts each child. It hurts extended families, all grandparents, all siblings, all aunts and uncles, all nieces and nephews, cousins, in-laws, ra- laid by marriage or live nearby. Harms all of society. We don't like to admit this. Malachi's rubbing our nose in it. All right? So often the divorcing person is just fighting my, for my personal happiness, but they end up not happy, and they hurt a lot of people in the meantime, and it's supremely selfish. Reason number three, God hates divorce, is because it's an illustration. Every single marriage is an illustration of Christ and his bride, the church. It's an illustration of the relationship between God and Israel, between God and his people, between Christ and his church. And when that observation is made that it's an illustration of Christ and his bride, then every divorce illustrates the opposite. Every remarriage illustrates that a believer could go ahead and divorce God and follow another God, which isn't true. So from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi to Second Corinthians and the, book of, you know, the whole New Testament, we see marriage has to be taught as a view from God. This marriage has to be between one believing man, one believing woman, entered into with great caution. Marriage partners must seek to preserve that union at all costs. Children, extended families, pastors, elders, deacons, and church families, ladies of the church, and every believer must support marriages and encourage people publicly and privately to stay in those marriages and insist that we all respect marriages. Because God hates divorce, we have to hate divorce. Maybe that's the place to start. To turn some in our country around. To love marriage is to be committed to supporting marriages. So I've come across loud and clear on this, uh, because Malachi has it, but I know that people struggle with guilt, struggle with false guilt, struggle with true guilt regarding their past, their personal past, or people around them. There's mercy in Christ Jesus, there's forgiveness, right? God heals, He restores, He does provide grace, He does draw a spouse to Himself despite wrongs and mistakes that were made. So God still offers mercy and grace to to his people, as we'll see in chapters 3 and 4 next week. Let's pray. Father, we have